My name's Jeanette, so I'm a music therapist. I actually work here at um, the Royal Talbot one day a week, but I'm also um, employed as a research fellow at Melbourne Uni. And I have worked in neuro rehab as a music therapist for 20 years now. So um, the last 14 years I've been here at Royal Talbot. I've also worked at Epworth in a consultancy role for a long time. And before that, I used to work at Ivanhoe Private when it was Ivanhoe Private, and now it's Northeastern Rehab. So been around for a little while. Um, so I just wanted to start with telling you a little bit about the evidence base for music therapy in neuro rehab. I published a book with a colleague back in 2006 um, about methods that we use in music therapy. Um, and also want to touch briefly on neurologic music therapy, which is a specialised training um, that you can do. Uh, and last year we published a Cochrane review on music interventions in acquired brain injury too. Um, and we found really briefly, because I don't want to go into it too much, um, 29 studies that met the inclusion criteria and 21 of those were included in a quantitative meta-analysis. We had 775 participants in those combined studies, 90% of them had stroke. And just in summary, we found um, really strong evidence for rhythmic auditory stimulation on gait rehab and some evidence for singing-based interventions for communication outcomes for people with aphasia um, and not really much evidence for music interventions in cognitive function, mood or behaviour, which is interesting because we get a lot of referrals for mood and behaviour, but anyway. Um, the other interesting thing that came out of the Cochrane review was that we found that music um, uh, rhythmic auditory stimulation, which we had the strongest um, effect for, was more effective when um, conducted by a music therapist than by another clinician or with a metronome or something like that, which is another interesting finding. So I'm just going to really briefly cover quite a few areas today in my talk, um, traumatic brain injury, stroke, spinal injury and some neurodegenerative conditions. I thought we might start with something uh, interactive, given that it's a music therapy talk. I might get you to actually experience what it's like. So put your coffees down for a sec. I'm going to stretch your brain. So we'll start with a little body percussion thing. So I need you to stand up for this because you're going to have to move. So follow me. The first bit is clap, tap, tap. Okay, and then we go clap, tap, tap, clap, slap, slap. So that's the whole thing. And then the last bit is stamp, clap, clap. So clap, tap, tap, clap, 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 stamp, clap, clap. And then we do a little ba-bum back into the beginning. All right, so clap, tap, tap, clap, slap, slap, stamp, clap, clap, clap. And back in. <laughs> Well, the last bit's where we're struggling, isn't it? Stamp, clap, clap. And then clap, clap. A short clap back into the one. And one, yeah. So the stamp, clap, clap, and back to the start. Okay. Clap, tap, tap, clap, slap, slap, stamp, clap, clap. And one. That's it, now you got it. And one. And one. Tap, tap, tap. Slap, slap, stamp. Tap. <laughs> keep going. Just keep going. All right. Now, if you're feeling really brave, you can try and sing with me. Music can heal your body. Music can soothe your soul. Music can change your brain. All you gotta do is sing. Music can heal your body. Music can soothe your soul. Music can change your brain. All you gotta do is sing. I want some brave souls to join me. Music can heal your body. Music can soothe your soul. 
music can change your brain. All you gotta do is sing. One more time, loud voices. Music can heal your body. Music can soothe your soul. Music can change your brain. All you gotta do is sing. Very good. All right. Who feels like their brain has been stretched in ways they didn't think was going to happen this morning? <laughs> um, oh, that was a bit unfair. I was meant to click onto that for you. Sorry. <laughs> I'm clicking on two, so it's hard to see. Um, so this is pretty much all I'm going to talk to you about today. So if you got that take-home message, you've got the whole thing. But what I really want to illustrate through doing that really is an experience of how much music is a whole brain activity. So you're using your so many networks in your brain at the same time. This little moving clip shows you the parts of your brain that highlight when you're participating in music. So you're using your attention and concentration, your auditory, your sound processing networks, your language networks, your sensory and motor coordination, as you saw doing that, um, your emotional networks, you know, your feelings, your higher executive functions, your planning and all of that. It's all happening all at the same time. So when we bring all of this together in one integrated neurological act of singing or participating in music, we're actually really um, using a whole brain and it makes it a really fantastic modality to work in in the neurorehabilitation context. So we know that we, when we're using music, we use a more distributed network of pathways in the brain. And we also know that when we're using music and language together, we access a more um, preserved neural pathways than just language when people have got um, language processing difficulties. We also know that rhythmic auditory cueing really um, stimulates the motor system and helps us to move more efficiently. And the medial prefrontal cortex has been identified as an area that connects memory, emotion and um, music. So that kind of explains the power of music and memory and the way it makes us feel. So there's lots of things that we know. We're starting to understand more about the way the brain processes music and the way they respond to music <coughs> through brain scanning. Um, there are five main areas that we work in neurorehabilitation and it sort of speaks a little bit to the way that we collaborate with all of the other allied health professions. So music therapy can work in physical rehabilitation, speech and language, cognitive rehabilitation, emotional wellbeing and adjustment, and also assessment and regulation of arousal. Neurologic music therapy, which I mentioned at the start, is um, an evidence-based model of music therapy that draws on a neuroscience model of music processing. And it talks, it sort of really works with um, using music to affect functional change um, on non-musical behaviour. So we're kind of using music as the mode through which to work, but we're actually not in trying to get people to be more musical or more, you know, better musicians or anything like that. So that's something that we often have to explain to um, patients because they go, oh, you know, music therapy, I'm not musical or I haven't got a musical but I can't sing and things like that. But it's more just a modality, a really engaging modality to work within um, and it really uses the whole brain. So this is a little indication of what happens with the brain at rest and then the brain responding to music, similar to that other spinning model I showed you before. Rhythm is a fundamental... Um, part of movement coordination that we really need and we also know that rhythm primes the motor neurons to get us ready to move and we know that internal rhythms um, synchronize automatically with external rhythms. So there's this principle of um, rhythmic entrainment where it's actually a physics principle that rhythms lock in together. So if you put a room of grandfather clocks and all the pendulums are swinging out of time, over time they just gradually synchronize together magic, I don't know why. And the same thing happens when we're moving with music, it's actually really hard to, you have to fight against walking in time or moving in time when you hear music with a strong rhythmic beat, you know, you're tapping your foot without even thinking about it. So there's this principle that we use called entrainment that we use a lot in um, rehabilitation. Um, and as I said in our Cochrane review we found 10 randomised control trials looking at rhythmic auditory stimulation and significant improvements in all these gait parameters. So I'll show you a little clip now of, this is a patient um, with a left hemiplegia and we're just showing you first of all stepping with without music and then with music. Stepping with no music. She's stepping without music. How much time's on each foot? Balance. The speed. 
So you can see that already just, you know, a few seconds later, she's changed the way that she's stepping, the amount of times, a bit more even on each foot. So she's almost doubled her speed, walking speed, and she's much more symmetrical in the way that she's walking. So that's an example of the immediate effect of rhythm on gait, and then what we use is that in a training process, and we kind of gradually increase um, the speed of the music over time, and then withdraw the music. Obviously, you don't want to be reliant on someone walking around with you with the guitar for the rest of your life, so the idea is that you remove that stimulus, but that you train with it. Um, how am I going for time? I'm going to skip this video just because I don't have time for it. Because I didn't know that you... Um, this is another um, technique that we use, um, therapeutic instrumental music performance, fancy name for playing instruments. We often call it TIMP in music therapy, but we can use music instruments um, for upper limb and for gait rehab as um, pre-gait training for strengthening endurance, coordination, range of movement and balance, things like this. Um, in our Cochrane review, we, we found some um, significant improvements in timing of upper extremity function and elbow extension angle for um, using music-based interventions in upper limb training. A couple of really quick clinical examples. Just want to really demonstrate the way that we need we we set up people in different positions to work on particular movement goals. So this young man's. Um, really working on his right upper limb, a couple of different goals. This is also collaborative work with OT, just getting people set up in the right angles. And then just some quick shots, so the way that we can sort of set up instruments to work on particular movement patterns. Pronation, supination, using gravity with and against gravity. Adapting instruments, sometimes we add weights to them or we pad them depending on what people need and then we can modify them over time. Different types of grip using different instruments. Um, this is a PhD student of mine who's working on um, uh, upper limb rehab for people with quite severe um, impairments in their upper limb after a stroke and using functional electrical stimulation um, to get some movement and then working towards more <coughs> functional movement. And she's using iPad because it requires not very much um, strength and range of movement. So I'll just show you a little clip of... This is actually um, a retired music professor, so you can kind of see that she's got the technique as, it's, as she's improving over time. Now she's got the um, e-stim off. So there are quite a few areas that we can work on in terms of communication um, rehab too. Um, and language, speech and respiratory and also voice quality. Melodic intonation therapy is um, a, quite a well-known method of treating aphasia that's based on music. And we're basically trying to um, use the language capable areas in the unaffected parts of the brain to help with getting back to speech through singing. We use singing, chanting and rhythmic tapping with the left hand to engage the, um, the motor areas in the brain for articulation. Um, and the idea is really that we um, put functional phrases to music in a way that rep uh, replicates the natural inflection of a phrase and then we teach that to the patient and then we remove the melody so it's kind of like you're chanting it and then you take away the rhythm and try and get back to more natural sounding speech. So it's probably easier to explain, in, uh, to demonstrate in a video. I'll just show you. This is a, a, a guy with aphasia post-stroke and he, at the start, she's, I think she's asking him, how do you like your coffee? And then he can't answer, he gets stuck on, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then we go through the melodic intonation phrase and then at the end of it, you'll hear him say. How do you have your coffee? What would you like to drink? Would you like a coffee? All right, let's try the exercise. Milk one, sugar with my coffee. Milk one, sugar with my coffee. 
How do you have your coffee? So you can see even just after that little practicing. So it's more about um, giving them the cues to be able to access their, their speech or their language again. Music also um, is good in motor speech rehab, so as, as well as language. So because we share all of the neural mechanisms for speech and language in the brain and all of the, um, the speech um, uh, articulators and breathing and rhythm and melody and all these common elements it makes it a really useful thing to work on speech. Through singing we can coordinate um, the timing using rhythmic and melodic cues um, and to organise speech and improve naturalness and intelligibility. So, yeah, yeah, jump in with yeah, questions. With that guy, just, I'm a neuroscientist, so I don't know anything about this or mm. um, But that, look, that's awesome how he learned that so quickly. Mm. But so, is the aim that, would you think that that would translate to other questions? Like, for me, from a cognitive point of view, I can imagine he's learned that response to yeah. that question, but will that translate to any other question, or do you have to teach the response to? Yeah, that's a good question actually, and I don't know the answer. I think in my experience it's been the phrases that we've learnt. Yeah. So it hasn't, I've never seen any magical return to spontaneous speech from this. It's more about giving them some functional sentences that they can cue themselves to be able to say. Yeah, yeah, just basic things to get through. But I think over time working with someone there is a little bit of more functional speech, but I, don't, I haven't ever seen from someone with quite severe aphasia come back to like just speaking normally, but it's more about just giving them access to be able to communicate basic needs and things. Yeah, and probably get at picking up yeah. the technique each time Yeah. Even just like getting them to internally cue or tap their foot to kind of get them started or think of something, you know, like try and think of it in a melodic way. It all depends on the amount of cognitive capacity as well. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, these are some of the other goals that we would have for speech as well as language. So increasing vocalisation, using music to stimulate um, speech, working on articulations, particular sounds in songs. We can highlight um, rate of speech, in voice inflection, breath control, and also loudness, voice projection. Um, I'm going to skip through that. These are some of the techniques that we use. So we can work on breathing and vocal exercises to help with articulatory control and um, respiratory strength. Vocal intonation therapy where we look more at um, intonation of the voice and how we support that using breathing and improving um, pitch and um, loudness and all of these other things. And I might just show you some examples now of uh, musical speech stimulation. So this is a young man who had a very severe frontal brain injury and this is about one year post. He hadn't spoken or made any sounds up until this point. He started vocalising, he got referred to speech um, therapy to you know, try and help with his speech rehab. But because of his severe frontal injury, he had no insight and no um, just easy planning and all of that from the severe frontal injury just found speech completely puzzling and boring and didn't want to be there and was very resistant and non-compliant. So he, referred, he was referred to music therapy and he was very dysarthric, he had quite good intonation. So I was really working on trying to um, get him his articulation of speech sounds better. So this is him trying to say Guns N' Roses just to he hear how his speech sounds. Can you try and say that for me? Uh, uh. So you can hear he's got the timing, but not the um, any of the set of the consonants. Now this is um, I've chosen this song to work on the sound M because in the chorus there's lots of. Mm. is happening with the video. Mm -hmm. 
might just keep moving on. But I had to kind of cue him, so we're starting with really simple sounds like bilabial sounds to begin with. Let's hope this one works a bit better. This is um, L, working on the sound L. I don't know what's going on with my video, but it's not really demonstrating what I want it to do. Um, let's try this one. You can see then he doesn't want to do outside of the music. So I started getting him to say the sound P, not interested, put it in the context of the song, a little bit interested, but he's like, hurry up and get going with the song. So when it's back in the context of the song, is much more compliant. And then over time, we can get to the point where we're actually doing musical exercises. I mean, articulation exercises. Okay. So we've kind of transitioned from, we're doing something musical, but he's engaged, is the point of that. We can also use um, the timing of songs to increase or decrease rate of speech, or uncoordinate breathing and phonation. This is just an example of how you can you choose songs that have short phrases. So just being able to choose the right songs for the right person with respiratory control can be helpful. Therapeutic singing is kind of an overall method that we use that covers lots of different things. Um, and I want to take you through really briefly some of the research that we've done. I did this um, case study research back in 2008 where we looked at um, people with dysarthria and did measures of their speech intelligible, get, recorded them speaking, reading and um, describing a picture before and after um, an eight week music therapy intervention where we did a lot of those techniques that I've just taken you through. Um, and we, um, this is an example of, we're using a musical intervention, but we're actually looking for translation of that um, outcome outside of music. So we tested them speaking before and after, not singing. Um, this one, oops. So this is um, a waveform, which is like a visual representation of, of a sentence, saying this sentence here. And this top line is left and right channels, and it's before, and this is after. So you can see already that the amount of time they're taking is less, and they've got these big gaps here in the beginning. He has no new feel, but I am different from before. So even just inflection, very monotone, almost robotic sounding, um, the way that she's saying that <laughs> sentence. He has no good feel, but I'm no different from before. He has he has and also um, increasing phrase lengths, so grouping more words together. So in this one, you can sort of see that really separated out one word at a time, whereas you've got breaths, uh, a couple of words together and then a breath and then a couple of words together, which makes it more sound more natural.
different patient now. He has made me feel um, no different from before. He has made me feel that I'm no different from before. He has... So we've... Um also been using singing as an alternate form of respiratory muscle training. So I did some um, research with people with spinal cord injury um, for my PhD back in 2011-12. And then more recently I've been working with people with Parkinson's, um, which also have difficulty, both of those populations have difficulty with voice projection due to respiratory issues. Um, when we're singing, we're taking in deeper breaths um, more quickly and we're using our out breaths longer and slower. We're using more of our lung volume and higher pressures. And we also know that because singing's usually enjoyable for most people, it's more likely to be something they can continue in the long term and be compliant with. Um, both of the studies that I'm talking about here, the one with quadriplegia and the Parkinson's ones, have found significant increases in vocal loudness and respiratory strength after three months of therapeutic singing interventions in comparison to the control groups. Um, this shows you the, we have, with a Parkinson study, I haven't got time to tell you too much about it, but we had two dosage levels. We had weekly singing versus monthly singing, and we had two um, controls. But the weekly singing group increased um, by um, significantly more than the weekly, sorry, weekly increased significantly more than monthly, who stayed about the same, and then the two control groups decreased over time, as you would imagine with a degenerative condition like Parkinson's. Um, and also with the um, spinal study, we found that a lot, we really found it difficult to recruit people because everyone's in Victoria quite um, spread out. So. I think the pop spinal population is disproportionately um, rurally and regionally um, isolated. So we had to think of a way that we could try and get people together to sing together in a group setting that was more accessible. So I've been working with a group at Melbourne Uni, the Network Society Institute, to develop a virtual reality online version of this um, protocol. So even though they're sort of sitting at home in their lounge room, they kind of feel like they're sitting around a campfire with other people in a group. So we're replicating that group setting and it's much more immersive than just trying to do it via Skype. And the other thing I should mention is that if you try and sing via Skype normally anyway, you can't do it in time because of the latency. So that was one of the major hurdles which I came to these guys in the beginning with. How can we sing together online? Because it's, it's really built for you talk, then I talk. So trying to do it together, it, it's difficult. Um, but yeah, this has been a really immersive experience. And the interesting thing that we found after interviewing some of our test um, people is that they feel less embarrassed about singing because you know none of these guys probably would be confident singers or would say they would sing, especially not in public. So having the mask on and stuff, it's a little bit more, feels a bit safer. Okay, let's keep moving. So cognitive rehabilitation, music therapy, we can work on concentration and attention, um, orientation, memory, planning and sequencing, and even visuospatial neglect. So some of those things, you will, if you cast your mind back to doing all that body percussion and trying to multitask and sing, you can kind of see how it's really great for working on concentration and attention, different types of attention. Um, we also can write songs with people to trigger recall of important information and to aid their memory. So um, an example of this is the way that we use music in early development. So kids learn their ABC and lots of stuff through um, songs. Just helps us to have that um, mnemonic aid to collect to um, the rhythm and the melody helps us to remember the information. And same things used in advertising jingles, you know, 
that's why people advertising music people get paid big dollars because they know how to make something that's catchy that sticks in your brain like an earworm and then you remember the phone number or the information about the ad so we use the same principle in music therapy with people with memory issues um, and also listening to songs getting people to remember information about songs using percussion activities with different types of um, tasks this is an example of a song that I wrote, obviously, with someone in 2013 here, um, but uh, helping them to remember um, autobiographical information. So this was a young man, had quite a severe um, stroke, bleed, I think, not quite a stroke, but yeah, and he um, really had difficulty, he had two young children, had difficulty remembering their names, didn't remember why he was here. So just this... Um, information was really helpful and he was very musical as well so it, it was a great motivation for him. So I'll play you a little bit of it. So this is an example of um, how we work collaboratively with other disciplines. So we, I think this might have been working with speech to kind of get the content down with the patient and then writing the song together with him and his wife. Um, we also had other verses about the two kids, one verse for each kid and cueing things about what was significant about those for him. Um, but that was a really um, useful thing. And we also write songs with people um, for functional tasks, like sequential tasks, like showering routine or getting dressed, and then we often collaborate with OT. I had a student a couple of years back who, music therapy student, and we were working with showering routine, and she actually had to go into the bathroom with the guitar and work out, because you need to work out the timing of the steps, because if you just record it, and then I'm running up to washing my tummy, and you've got me washing my feet, so we had to, work out the timing out of it and it was interesting. She never thought she'd be in the shower with someone playing guitar. <laughs> Things that you do. Um, and the, probably one of the other areas that we work on a lot is emotional adjustment and grief and loss and things like that, which you can imagine. Music you know, really connects with our emotions. So, um, and also music is quite a culturally appropriate way for people to process that stuff. Often when we have um, people who find it difficult to articulate in words or to get in touch with their feelings in a talking based therapy with psychology or something like that, sometimes we can um, get to them through music. So, and we do often get referred the two hard basket cases in music therapy. They know that people are struggling to you know, make progress in a particular way and just coming at it from a different angle through music and building that rapport and then you know, all of these effects that I've shown you that we can have, it's, it's quite helpful. We do a lot of songwriting with people in, still spinning, um, people in rehab and we've also just finished um, a big ARC funded study that was looking at changes in self-concept over time um, following a traumatic neurological injury, spinal injury, stroke and acquired brain injury. And we recruited a lot of the participants through Royal Talbot, Epworth, um, Monash Health as well, I think. And basically this was a, a six-week um, protocol where we wrote three songs with people using quite a targeted songwriting protocol. So usually when we're writing songs with people, it's very um, patient-directed and what's coming up for them and just, you know, using their what's what's yeah an issue for them at the time whereas this study we were looking at um, targeting self-concept specifically so we broke it down into the six subdomains of self-concept like um, 
physical self-concept, how do I feel about my body and self-image and things like that, personal self-concept, social, family, um, work or education, moral or spiritual. So I think those were the six subdomains and we kind of really prompted people to examine them, the, how they saw themselves in, in relation to all those six subdomains. And they wrote a song, three songs over that six weeks about one was who was I before the accident in relation to all those things, who do I feel like I am now and who do I think I'm going to be. So it was like past, present and future. And we took lots of measures on self-concept and well-being measures over time. And we found nothing. <laughs> we found, I might play something out, out of my computer because I've got a little, um, an example of a song that someone wrote. And we did some, we also, as part of the study, um, went through and did a lyric analysis of all the um, songs. That was a song about the present self, but just to give you an example of what it sort of sounds like when someone writes a song like that. So we um, did a pilot study and then an, an RCT, and this is the results of the pilot study. Um, and we basically found that um, the, there was an effect for the meaningfulness of the songwriting experience. And we did, in the lyric analysis that I mentioned, we found that people really focused a lot on the physical self in the middle song. So the red is the pre and the, sorry, the first song, second song and third song. So that kind of makes sense, I think, if you think you're in rehab and you really focus on your physical goals. Um, at the beginning, the first song, people were focusing more on family and personal self. In fact, personal self was kind of big throughout them all. And then family self became less while they were in rehab and then as I started thinking about going home more again. So we c concluded that therapeutic songwriting was a really powerful way for people to tell their story. It also brought painful issues to conscious awareness. The other thing that we found was their um, well-being measures like depression and things actually got worse at the midpoint, which was like halfway through writing that song about now, which kind of makes sense. Sometimes it, when you bring all of that stuff into your conscious attention and focusing on how that affects them as a person, actually made them feel worse, but then they got better again at the end. So I had some interesting sort of interpretations of what that means. I just want to really briefly tell you about some of the other research studies that we've done. So I talked to you about the dysarthria one from a while back, 10 years ago now. Um, we've been also looking at intonation following traumatic brain injury. A colleague did her PhD research in that area. We've done research with, um, have you heard of the Stroke Accord Choir? They're a um, choir that um, set up in about 2010 for people with aphasia post-stroke. Um, and I helped them to set that group up and we did some research with them about communication outcomes and um, feelings of connection and things. We had some good results for that study. The Parkinson's um, study I mentioned, we just finished last end of last year 
um, it, it was a 12-month study looking specifically at um, high-intensity vocal effort and singing and vocal exercises looking at improving um, loudness, so speech intensity as our primary outcome and also well-being and things like that. And so we found some really great significant results in that. We've only looked at three-month data so far, but we've got the six and 12-month time points to al analyse. Um, other studies looking at reducing um, agitation and increasing orientation for people in post-traumatic amnesia and showing a good effect for music in that area, which is interesting because sometimes we're a bit worried about overstimulating people in, in PTA and so we're like, oh, don't play music to them. But I think um, in a controlled and informed way, we can use music that actually helps people's orientation and can decrease their agitation. Obviously not just sticking the radio on in their room and letting it go, but like we used um, specific familiar songs in short time bursts and things like that and it was in helpful. Um, we've also done study in people with motor neuron disease, like in their transition to non-invasive non ventilation and um, giving them a music, relation ex music relaxation um, intervention to help manage their anxiety about ventilation with good results as well. Um, I briefly mentioned the study with quadriplegia, so again looking at respiratory function and voice projection. The next step of that now is we've developed this virtual reality platform and we're going to be going into testing that in clinical trials as well. Now that really is it. <laughs> Caught up to my other slides. So yeah, any questions or um, reflections? <coughs> TAC is a funny one. They don't, at the minute, like to fund music therapy for outside of hospital. They say, you know, if you've got TAC patients in a hospital bed, then you choose how you spend your money. But for outpatients, they used to, when I used to work at Ivanhoe, we used to have outpatient funding for TAC and we just put in our plans and they'd approve them. And then something happened at some point and they said no. And um, We've had a go at trying to get them to reconsider. I think we're in a quite a different place. I think the last time we went back to ask them about it, it was probably 10 years ago. And I think our evidence base has changed a lot in that time. And I know that from my university role, there's a TAC research panel and I'm on that as a music therapist. So it just seems weird. So I feel like we need to be agitating to get music therapy funded back through TAC. We're on NDIS. So, so uh, getting mixed responses NDIS. with NDIS. I know, because so they're confused, they don't know within themselves what what's going on. But yeah, yeah, so you are. We are, yes, we definitely are. Yeah, yeah. Some providers, or some case, what are they called? Not case managers, um, support, support yeah. whatever their yeah, yeah. word is, yeah. um, possibly don't know. But if you go in going, I know it is, oh, make it happen. The planners, the, the planners. planners, yeah. So if you say, I know that it is. Yes, <laughs> make it happen. It definitely is, you can check the website, you know. And I also am on the board of the Australian Music Therapy Association. So I know from that perspective, like we've been working really hard to increase our profile and educate NDIS planners. So from the top, they know, but I don't think it filters down sometimes. Some people have no trouble Plans get approved all the time. Some people go, no, music therapy is not approved, and they have to push. And yeah, yeah. but you well, should I've be. Quite a few clients who've had music therapy with STR funding. Yeah. And then transitioning in, and yeah. They're not. Uh, oh, just getting mixed. Thoughts. Yeah, it's annoying and confusing, but it's definitely. Great. Good. The answer is yes. Okay. So you just have to push harder. <laughs> and yeah. Especially important for people who've had, you know, slow to recover funding and, you know, they want to be able to continue on. Um, which, for Parkinson's, which hospitals would include, I'm just thinking of a current NDIS Parkinson's client that we're just doing a plan for now, that this would be great for. Mm -hmm. um, but he, so the people that they've chosen to do the plan does not include a music therapist, so probably the speech you recommending it in the plan. 
Um, but from a public point of view, does which hospitals um, so I don't know if I know Monash Health do so out at Kingston they have music therapists um, there I don't know if they do out yeah and I don't know if they have music therapy in their outpatient music movement disorders clinic but never hurts to ask I always say always ask because if people even if you get knocked back if, if there's requests keep happening then maybe they'll start providing it. Same thing with TSE, I always say, I know it's not approved, but if you keep hammering them, you know, they'll go, what is this? Annoying people keep asking about music therapy and hopefully they'll do something and when we go back to them and... You're only going to, you know, the, you're only talking to your little support coordinator who's got no... Power up the power chain. or influence up the chain, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, but I do, yeah. You hope that they will at length when you go to the point of ask, you know, go to the top of the chain and ask for them to approve it. Then, if they're getting that message filtered through from below as well, it might add to the case. I don't know, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> maybe not. And so, how does someone find, like, if I was going to recommend someone have music therapy, how would they find the person that's appropriate for their specific, like, if you Google music therapy? Yeah. Well, on the Music Therapy Association webpage, there's a little find an RMT um, button, so you can do it that way. Um, and I think it even has NDIS providers like listed under there. Yeah. Um, in terms of specific public hospitals, I didn't finish answering that question. I mean, there are music therapists scattered around Austin Health, Monash Health has like seven or eight. I think there's probably six or seven of us here at Austin. Um, uh, where else? Eastern has some, but I'm not quite sure in what areas. So in terms of rehab, I'm not sure how many there are specifically, but um, yeah. Royal Melbourne, Melbourne Health. Have quite so a few. Do, do music therapists tend to are, are them working as in all most like all in private practice or mix of private all over the shop? Yeah. yeah. Some in public hospitals, some in private, some in private practice, some in clinics. Like there are a lot of people setting up in clinics with other allied health professionals doing NDIS stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And dressing and yeah. I've got a, mm. a client who has, um, and, you know, that's such a trigger for her behavioural yep. issues. Um, we have already talked about yep. music It's so great on so many levels. It's like you've got the cueing, but it's also she's a distraction. Responsive to music that we've realised. Yeah, she's singing and she's great music. Yeah. Yeah, so I know we've sort of, you know, looked at music, singing songs in the shower and, and music in, in the shower, but... Um, someone to sort of hadn't thought about the pacing mm. of it. Yeah. Be, yeah. yeah. And, and having that is not actually being able to just put music on to sort of necessarily pace it. Mm -hmm. To have someone who's a specialist to yeah. actually guide through the process. Yeah. Same kind of thing though as you know, you don't always want a music therapist in the shower with you. So we no. would do that initially and yeah, then we'd no, probably set you up with something. Yeah, but then you could record yeah. it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Record it and then play it as a prompt. And mm -hmm. It's also really good for just distraction, like from a pain perspective or a behavioural perspective, like getting out of that loop of negative responses. Mm -hmm. Something else to focus on, something that's engaging, something that actually focuses you in on something that is better than what you were focusing on. Summarise, at the beginning you said the Cochrane Review said that there was no significant um, difference with um, cognition, mood or behaviour. Mm -hmm. Even though obviously saying it's good and I can see what would be yeah. good, but what did the Cochrane Review... Not so much that there wasn't any um, effect, just that there weren't any studies. Yeah. And there was like, yeah, hardly any, hardly any research in that area. And what is there is really kind of low quality, yeah. not much. Which we kind of found interesting, because when you look at referral patterns, you get a lot of referrals for that. But I think it's hard to show um, 
maybe people aren't choosing to research it because it's hard to pin it down, like how to show change. Where some of those more functional outcomes like walking speed and you know, you can just measure it and. I think it would be easy to show change with an agitated client, like you know, you know, a PTA sort of client would be really easy to show. Yeah, well that's true. Maybe we just need to do more research in that area. Because it's definitely in dementia, there's heaps of research showing um, reduces of agitation with music therapy, yeah. We, we try and tell people not to do that, but it's unavoidable because often, you know, people who are referring, don't, music therapy doesn't pop into your mind and then you go, oh, so-and-so is a guitarist and then like, oh, that's right, he's a guitarist, music therapy, let's refer him to music therapy. Yeah. Yeah, happens all the time, happens all the time and it actually sometimes works negatively because people who ha have been a musician and then have had a severe yeah. and they can't play anymore, it actually brings up lots of stuff. So it doesn't actually, yeah. So I think if someone is very resistant or doesn't want to, you know, but there aren't many people who hate music and refuse to do anything. They're always a bit like embarrassed or scared maybe to start with because they don't know what's going to happen. But once they get there, it's, yeah, it's really good. But yeah, we do get a lot of referrals. And I think sometimes people have had a musical background or interest self-refer, like when they hear about music therapy, more than you just your general anyone. Yeah, that's something that we're constantly saying. You don't have to have any musical background. Yeah. 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 Great. Well, it's lovely to share with you all. Thanks for having me. Great. Thank you.